This is Off Script with Trish Glose, intimate interviews and conversations with interesting people. And in front of my microphone today is Dr. Jim Shames. Thank you for being here. My pleasure, Trish. You know, we kind of go way back, you and I. I've been interviewing you over the years here just with KTVL as a young reporter. Been bugging you on topics including methamphetamine, methadone, opioid crisis, addiction. So you, you were always sort of my go-to guy when I wanted to interview someone. I, I can still be your go-to okay, guy, depending I like what to, you want to talk to me about. I like to hear that. Okay. And just for everybody, all of our listeners, you are the health officer for Jackson County. Correct. Okay. But at one point, you were the medical director for both Jackson and Josephine County? Correct. Okay. And that's Health and Human Services Department, health services for the counties. Right. It's a, it's a public health job. And before that, I was just a family practice doc. Oh, really? Okay. See, I didn't know that. That's why you're here today. I'm going to find some new things out about you. Um, First of all, tell me where you're from originally. I'm from the East Coast, um, outskirts of New York City and ultimately New York, and then school in Wisconsin, Philadelphia. My. I've been on the West Coast since. So you say outskirts of New York City. Where exactly? Long Island. Long sub- Island. Suburbs of New York. Okay. Um, and you were you were born in Long Island? I was born in Florida. You were born in Florida. Right. And then uh, since the age of four, I've, I was on the East Coast. Okay. So, I mean, did your family just move around a lot or you just don't like to stay in one place this, for, for very long? Uh, well, I, I didn't have much to say about it at you didn't. four. <laughs> it, was, it was business on my on my dance part and okay and then they settled down and that's where they stayed okay what was childhood like living on the east coast oh kind of pampered upper middle class didn't have too many worries i was kind of a feral kid in in many ways my my (laughs) wait why do you say that a feral kid well for various reasons my folks were doing what they were doing and left me to my own resources I couldn't, I couldn't really get in much danger, but mm-hmm. I don't feel like I had a huge amount of supervision, really. Mm-hmm. Were they both working? Did they work a lot? My dad worked, and my mom was just gone, and sometimes she'd sweep me up to go shopping or whatever, and mm. sometimes just leave me alone. Okay. It worked out. I, was a, I had a single mom, and so I was sort of that, I'd get off the bus, and I'd get home, and no one was home. Yeah. And so I didn't necessarily get into trouble unless you count like getting into her makeup or getting into the kitchen and creating things that I probably shouldn't have been creating. That, yeah, that was, was the kind of trouble. Yeah, I, I suppose it was similar. Okay. I had lots of time to explore things I probably shouldn't have explored. <laughs> okay. Um, and so what did your, what'd your dad do? Well, my dad was an interesting guy. He, he was in the dress business. He, he actually created mail order for uh, plus-size women's dresses. But in the background, he always kind of wanted to be a a healthcare person. He he didn't have that opportunity. He became a, a, a hypnotherapist in his later years, and that's wow. that's what he did when he retired. Okay, I know one other hypnotherapist. Mm. It's a fascinating job. It is, and that's it, you. Well, you explain it to me. Is it essentially putting someone under um, hypnosis to stop an addiction or something exactly. like that? Okay, exactly. Go under hypnosis and lose weight, uh, stop smoking, what have you. Is he right. successful with that? Was he successful with that? Um, yeah, I think he was. I think he was pretty good at what he did. Mm-hmm. Um, it it was something I was interested in for a while, but I, I didn't like the relationship that existed between myself and having this sort of total control with somebody mm-hmm. else made me uncomfortable, and I, 
stop doing it. I could see that. Do you think you're, you know, you said your dad always wanted to go in the health care field. Do you think that's the reason why you went that route? Um, only in the sense there were sort of philosophical underpinnings that, you know, kind of the kind of person my dad was. And, mm-hmm. um, but no, the, the, there was no medical talk in our family. And, okay. and I really didn't, I really didn't think I was going to be a doctor until sort of the last minute. Oh, okay. We'll get to that. Um, and then your mom for a hot second, what'd she do? Hung around the house and, um, was a housewife. This mm-hmm. was the 1950s and 60s. And mm-hmm. I think the expectations were different. And they were. my dad made enough money that she, she could, could do, do that. that. She could do that. Yeah. And I'm sure it was nice for you guys to have her there sometimes. Yeah, sure. Did you grow up with siblings? I have two older sisters, right? Oh, you're the baby. I'm the baby. That's oh, right. man, that explains a lot. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it does. I'm the baby, too. And I just, uh, I feel like the babies can kind of get away with a lot. They can. I think that's true. Did you? Well, I was kind of babied by my sisters, you know. Oh, that's um, nice. Yeah. So um, you were babied, not beat up? Uh, baby, not beat up. Yeah. Okay, that's no. good. My brother beat me up, so. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it made me made me tougher for sure. Uh, where'd you go to high school? Uh, Lawrence High School in Long Island, New York. Okay. Do you remember the mascot? Uh, no. Man, I really put you under. <laughs> I just, I really just. We like were the gold. Right now. We were the gold tornadoes. But I don't believe our mascot was a tornado. (laughs) That's not really fair. If you're if you go to a high school and you're called the, you know, I mean, you can't. It's it's impossible almost to have a, you know, a tornado as a mascot as we've seen locally here in Medford. It's just it's a tough mascot to have, you know, versus a Spartan or a tiger or something like that. Uh, What were you like in high school? I was I was one of the shortest kids in high school, and I think I compensated for that by kind of being a jokester and hmm. you know I was a little bit of a little bit of a cut up and toward the end I I was a folk singer so my I kind of identified as the guy who played folk songs on the guitar in the corner oh nice would you consider yourself a class clown then so, oh, sort of okay I, I think in I think in grade school I was I think I sobered up just a bit in high school okay so you played guitar and sang folk music. Right. And this was right. what in the 60s? This is yeah, this is uh, groups that none of your none of your listeners will have heard of. Hey, no, maybe not, maybe <laughs> not. So, what came after high school then? I went to University of Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. I was a, a psychology major and then um, went to medical school in Philadelphia and that's kind of my trajectory and then I ended up here. Okay. So, why did you say then that um, going into medicine was kind of a last-minute thing for you? Well, I, I thought I was going to be a therapist, a psychotherapist, and, um, and then ultimately I thought I'd be a psychiatrist. The war in Vietnam was happening. People were getting drafted. Um, people in medical school were delaying their draft. You know, you sort of bought four years. Mm-hmm. And that, that became increasingly important to me because I knew I wouldn't go into the war. So my choices were... Um, you know, conscientious objector or leaving the country or going to medical school. That's kind of how I saw it. Okay. So medical school it was then. That was your choice. Right. And I thought I'd be a psychiatrist. I would, you mm-hmm. know, I would do psychotherapy and I'd use medicines. And that was, that was my, that was kind of how I went through medical school. And as it turns out, I did exactly the opposite. But 
That's where I thought I was headed. Okay, so after medical school, was then it was Oregon? Right. Um, so I had accepted a residency at University of, uh, of OHSU in oh, okay. Portland mm -hmm. to be a psychiatrist. And I wanted to be on the West Coast because it seemed like that's where everything was happening. You know, the East Coast seemed kind of buttoned down and kind of stuck in the past. And the mm -hmm. West Coast seemed like it was heading to somewhere else. And Was it? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. no, I came out to visit and I was... I was impressed. People were relaxed and friendly and open, and mm -hmm. I was looking for that. At any rate, uh, I took a year off um, for various reasons and didn't do the residency in psychiatry. I kind of took a, a, a medical gap year. Okay. And so I was legal to practice medicine, although I didn't know very much. <laughs> and, um, and so I told them, uh, no thanks. I need a year to find myself. I reapplied. I got reaccepted. And so then I came out to the West Coast and kind of took odd jobs, worked for uh, the health department in Portland, and I worked on an Indian reservation for a while and just waiting until my residency came around. And um, What was it like working on the Indian reservation? Uh, What'd you do, I guess? Well, I, I, I was over my head. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was... <laughs> I was practicing medicine at a level I hadn't really been trained for. But uh, the part of the training that was appropriate is that, back in those days at least, my internship was just um, treating very poor people who, um, and, and working on the Indian reservation was similar. But these were very poor, you know, rural people, and mm -hmm. I was just treating very poor urban people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it, that's always an ambivalent thing. I mean, you're, you're helping folks, but it often feels like kind of taking advantage of the fact that, you know, you as a intern or, or me as a, you know, freshly minted doctor doesn't really know much. Mm -hmm. So they get, they get me instead of somebody who does know a lot. Mm, I see. So it's, you know, it's a plus minus thing, I think. For sure. And so then after this, th then you had your residency and that's? No. Okay. So that's where my, that's where my life took a, took a turn. Ooh. The story gets interesting, took right. a turn. So what, what do you mean by that? Well, um, so there was this community in Southern Oregon that was um, living off the land, back to the earth, being self-sufficient back in rural Josephine County, a um, community called Tequilma. And they uh, just experienced a, a huge hepatitis outbreak. Wow. And uh, big enough that the state came down to provide them with gamma globulin and, and um, kind of help, help direct the public health efforts. And as a result, I heard about that. And what I heard was, this is a community that wants to be self-sufficient and they want to set up their own clinic. Um, I was kind of an idealistic young doctor who had all sorts of ideas about what healthcare ought to be like. And so um, one thing led to another and I came down there and we had a big community meeting and I had an agreement. I said, well, if you guys can find a building and find some staff, I'll help you create a clinic between now and when I end up doing my psychiatric residency. And they did, mm. kind of building, and, and local doctors and hospitals donated uh, exam tables and equipment, and uh, we just started this free clinic out in the woods. So. We provided health care to anybody 
um, and people paid what they could. And I saw this as kind of a short-term thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, was a, it was a big surprise. I mean, I had very little training, as I said. I was going to be a psychiatrist. And all of a sudden, women are having babies in teepees, and people are coming in with gigantic chainsaw cuts, and they're saying, we're not going anywhere. You know, if, if help us have this baby or help sew up this laceration, otherwise I'm just going to go home. Oh, my goodness. Was this sort of like a commune-type community? Well, there were lots of communes within mm-hmm. this community, people okay. who who were trying to find another way to, to live a life, right? Okay. I mean, again, remember, the war in Vietnam was going on. It was very unpopular. The government didn't seem to be on the side of, of many people. Um, so the thought was, well, let's, let's create society a little differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would go for, you know, the, the, way, the way folks live. So living communally, collectively. Sure. Uh, having, you know, creating a healthcare system, building their own buildings, teaching their own kids, that sort of thing. Okay. Really living off the land. Living off the land. Okay. And this is, what decade are we talking here? Talking 1973. Seven, okay. I was going to say early 70s. So you are this community's doctor. Correct. I mean, there's really no other way to put it. They didn't have any other resources, nor were they going to look for those resources. It was just you. Well, they, they were certainly going to create their own resources. Okay. Um, I mean, for example, uh, women having babies in the woods would gather other women around them looking for the most experienced person there, mm-hmm. you know, creating a, a, a midwifery system. Exactly. What I brought was, um, you know, some basic healthcare knowledge. I knew how to start an IV. Um, I knew how to learn what I didn't know. Um, and so, you know, I kind of jumped in and learned what I could, especially from the folks that were, you know, already there doing things. Were you, did you deliver a lot of babies? Hundreds, if not thousands. Are you kidding? Just in this community or? Right. Wow. Well, not just in that. So to, so the story is that um, I discovered what rural primary care looked like and what, you know, doing real medicine was like. And when it came time to go do my residency that I promised them I would do, I, um, I changed course and I decided to stick around and do rural medicine. And so at that point, um, I needed to learn stuff I didn't know. And so um, with the help of a lot of local community docs, you know, they would, I'll give you an example. So uh, this was a mostly young population. Mm-hmm. Um, and the men would want to, you know, have vasectomies. I didn't know how to do a vasectomy. So a local urologist came to the clinic with his assistant and two sterile packs. He did the first vasectomy, and I assisted him. And I did the second vasectomy, and he assisted me. <laughs> and then he said, okay. And that's it. You're on your own. You're on your own. Right. Oh, man. So within this community, and this is the community of Tacoma. Correct. How long did you stay there as the doc? Well, um, I lived there for 17 years. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. I was envisioning like a handful of years. 17 yeah, years you right. lived there. That's right. And, and that clinic, the Tacoma People's Clinic, became the Siskiyou Community Health Center, which is the federally qualified health center uh, in Josephine County. How awesome. Yeah. 
So this was something that you really, do you feel like you moved to this community and seeing the help that you provided, it, did that hook you for rural medicine? Is that obviously why maybe you changed routes? Um, there were lots of things that okay. hooked me. Um, being able to, um, to act on the things that I believed to be true instead of just mouthing them or saying them or thinking about them was probably the most compelling thing. I mean, I had all sorts of ideas of how healthcare should be. Mm-hmm. You know, it should be a right, it shouldn't be a privilege. People shouldn't have to go into debt uh, to get healthcare. Um, it, people should be empowered. Um, it could sort of be, a, it, it should include kind of a grassroots in the sense that um, people shouldn't feel like things are being done to them, right? So th- those, are, those are things I had formulated, but I wasn't doing anything about it. And here was an opportunity to practice medicine in keeping with what I saw as my principles and to do it with an entire community behind me. Right. who said, those are our principles. Also, let's, let's do this together. That feels pretty good. It feels pretty good. Yeah, because you could have easily gone to, you could have done that residency and been, you know, charged quite a bit and been a doctor living in a very cozy, comfy house. But instead you chose to go this path where right. people were paying you what they could. I think, I think the, the really difficult thing was that I had, my, I had my future all figured out. You know, I, had the, I could see where the train was headed down the tracks. You know, I was going to be a groovy psychiatrist with, you know, leather patches on my, you know, on my corduroy jacket living in the smoking West Smoking a pipe. Hi- <laughs> smoking a pipe, exactly. <laughs> living in the West Hills of Portland. And, you know, I could just see it. And then to get off of that, in, and to n- have no idea where the future was leading me mm-hmm. uh, was was the most um, most difficult thing I think I'd ever done up till that point. That was that was a leap of faith, and I'm glad I did it. But it it was it was scary. Well, it sounds like it paid off though, because ultimately that was what was most rewarding for you. Well, I mean, you never know right. when you take a path what the other path would have been, sure. but it was certainly rewarding for me. Right. And you said scary. A lot of people wouldn't do that. They wouldn't just... Sure. You know, they, they would go down that path that with the corduroy jacket and the pipe and a comfy house in the West Hills of Portland, and you decided to essentially live on a commune. I don't want to call it a commune, but it was... It I, lived was on, I lived on a commune. You lived on a commune. Okay, right. we'll just say it. <laughs> awesome. That's going to be in the title, I think, by the way. Uh-huh. Some, something about living on a commune. So there for 17 years. Right. W- um, besides delivering hundreds of thousands of babies, um, what other interesting medical things came your way living there? Um, I mean, you hmm. mentioned the chainsaw lacerations, which I can only imagine would be something of, you know, horrific, but what, well, what else? Well, well, I clearly had some very interesting experiences. I, I wouldn't, I'm only hesitating because, you know, those are, those are the kinds of things that people remember in their lives, and yet they don't really capture most of what was happening. Okay. Let me, let me talk about most of what was happening, then, then I'll okay. drift into one of the interesting stories. So I like it. Most of what was happening was um, a group of people who were all dedicated to a common mission, mission around healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, nurses and 
you know, I'm, I'm the doctor and lab techs and people who had dropped out, but they dropped back in again to make this clinic work. And a number of people who showed a lot of skill in terms of women's health care would be an example. You know, so we would have midwives, you know, providing women's health care to women mm-hmm. um, who did a lot of the a lot of the, the direct patient care, for example. A number of people went to PA school, nursing school, medical school, um, having worked at the clinic, and, and many of them came back. So over the years, you know, there was this um, regeneration that occurred. Uh, it, was a, it was a place where the hippies and the straight community could all get together in the same waiting room. You know, the, this is before the Affordable Care Act. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people didn't have insurance. Right. So, to, you know, to get health care, it might be different than what you were expecting, but to get health care and you pay what you can afford uh, or barter, um, you know, brought a lot of people um, who wouldn't ordinarily have come to a clinic like that. And it was, it was gratifying to sort of see, um, you know, the commingling of cultures um, through the clinic. Um, so... It, it it was an unusual time then. It was not too long after the Vietnam War. Okay. Um, there was um, there's a lot of that was another interesting mingling of the cultures. You have folks who were in the war, who kind of came back unsettled, didn't know where to go, I'm found sure. themselves you know in the woods, and then you got people who passionately resisted the war, and came to the same community you know, as a, as a way to kind of redefine their lives. And, and there they are, both, both groups kind of walking the same Coexisting. Paths. Coexisting, right. Um, I guess one story that, that really sticks in my mind, and we'll see if I can tell it. Okay. Um, so I'm in the clinic. I'm, I'm in the, so I'll give you an example. So the, the, the uh, emergency room that we created, that we mm-hmm. built for ourselves, we called it the uh, the Ho Chi Minh Memorial Surgical Pavilion. <laughs> uh, Ho Chi Minh being the the leader of the Viet Cong, so that would be an indication of sort of where the clinic staff was at in relation to the war. It, while I'm in there, I think I was suturing uh, somebody up. This soldier comes in in combat fatigues, just a gigantic guy. He's carrying an M16, mm. and he says, I want the doctor. I want the doctor right now. He's coming with me. <laughs> so, Oh, man. Right. So um, I did as I was told. I got, I got my, little, my little cute black bag that you get when you graduate medical school with uh-huh. your, my name in, in Boston <laughs> gold with some medical supplies. And this guy takes me in his car to this little little crackerjack house with a with a chain link fence around it he unlocks unlocks the chain link fence we drive in he locks it back again and um go into this dingy room this dingy little house and the first thing i noticed when i got there was this this rank foul smell this this smell of rotting flesh Mm. and and what i encountered was this group of ex-soldiers, all drunk and stoned, and and there's a there's a guy. Their buddy is on the floor. He's a quadriplegic, and he's been on the floor for I don't know how long. 
He's been there. He's just been lying there. Oh, man. For weeks, Oh, maybe. wow. And so they, they didn't know what to do with this guy. And, it, it, you know, he, he, he got me in the only way he knew how to get me. I, you know, I realized I really wasn't probably in danger. Anyway, to make a long story short, we, we went back to the clinic had to cut this guy out of the carpet and, and bring him to the clinic and mm. I guess and, and and clean him up and get him, you know, and, and eventually got him to the VA and they shipped him out to Portland. I mean he was he was in really bad shape. But there was a sense of we we've got to do everything ourselves. Sense of lawlessness. I mean, normally you would just call the police. You call nine one one. You call nine one one. Um I, I don't know that that came to mind and besides we're pretty far out there, so exactly. we're going to have to deal with it ourselves. Um, there were a number of situations where I found myself medically, you know, in a place where I never would have been in a in a different community at a different point in time. Um, I learned a tremendous amount about it. I learned, a, a, you know, a lot about myself mm -hmm. and learned a lot of medicine in the process. Well, you said it earlier. For these people, it was either you or nothing or no one. Oh, I think there would have eventually been, I mean, when there's a vacuum, something will come and fill it. Uh, I feel good about, you know, w what we did, and mm -hmm. um, I learned a lot of public health, which eventually, you know, led into, you know, the career in my latter part of my life. Right. Some amazing stories, I'm sure, living there. Uh, yeah. What made life. you decide to not live there anymore? Well, for one thing, when you live on a commune, uh, you do everything by consensus. I mean, you know, there's a lot of discussion. And at a certain point, you know, maybe you don't want to talk to five or six people when you want to use the truck, you know. So there, there's that. It's um, <laughs> kind of a, a growth. Where, sure. You know, um, and um, the other thing is we had kids, and uh, our kids grew up, and at some point, the, the education options were the Cave Junction Public School or, you know, continue to, mm -hmm. you know, we had, we had a, a community school that was great, mm -hmm. the Dome School, which still exists. Um, so it was school. It was time to move on. Um, I hadn't made much money for 17 years and, you know, kind of looking ahead, going, well, <laughs> at some point I'm probably going to need some. Need to make some money. Did you get <laughs> married on the commune? Yeah, got married. You met? Right. Did you meet your wife there? I met my wife at the at the very my very first day in town. I come I come to this town with this agreement. I'm going to help set up this clinic, and I somebody says, "Hey, uh, somebody's having a baby in that school bus over there. <laughs> we, you know, we need you." Uh -huh. So, you know, complete trial by fire. And and as it turns out, my wife was one of the local folks that was kind of mm -hmm. there to help and. We kind of circled around each other for a couple of months before we met and then got married. I love it. So you not only met your wife on the first day of living, living here, you also right. helped deliver a baby. That's right. All in a day's work. All in a day's work. <laughs> All That's on right. the first day. Right. So you guys decided then you have kids, and it's just, it's just sort of time to move on. I think we all sort of feel that sometimes. It's just kind of time for us to move yeah. on. Um, where did that lead you? Josephine County? Did you stay within the county or? No, no, no. We moved to Ashland. You moved and, to Ashland. And a, and a number of a number of people we knew had moved to Ashland. Okay. So we, we had a, you know, kind of a, a group of friends already there with an easy transition. The schools were great. Um, mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And then as far as occupation goes? Well, I, I continued to be the medical director for what was now a federally qualified health center, the Cisco Community it. Health Center, which had multiple sites at that point. Um, I also started working at La Clinica mm -hmm. um, and um, started working for the county in, in various capacities, worked at the jail, uh, worked at the methadone clinic. So, you know, at, at some point I've had a number of mm -hmm. pieces of work. Mm -hmm and then gradually pulled away from the work in Josephine County and concentrated on Jackson County. So was it ever interesting, or did you ever even think about having your own practice, in a sense? And I mean, I know you kind of had your own practice really living on this commune, but... No. Okay. No. No. Um, <laughs> the answer is no. <laughs> the answer is no. No, I, I, uh, for one thing, um, I liked being able to within very narrow boundaries, kind of set your own rules, um, you know, make make decisions that were really important that without having to um, be part of an organization where there, there may be compromises that I weren't comfortable with. Mm -hmm. um, I say that, and yet I was quite comfortable working at La Clinica and at Cisco Community Health Center. But, but a, you know, a more traditional practice, I think, I think the primary constraint would have been to know that the bottom line is how much money has to be made to keep the practice going yeah. in, in a way that's different. You know, uh, federally qualified health centers get federal money to support those who can't afford health care, and the Tacoma Clinic, absolutely, you know, you would, you would get health care whether you could afford it or not. I think drifting into a, a fee-for-service uh, situation wouldn't have worked for me. It sounds like it. I was just going to say, you just sound like the kind of, of doctor that just wants to help people who um, can't really afford Healthcare. Yeah, or or they can, but but not to make a distinction that I'm going to take care of you because you can afford it, and I'm not going to sure. take care of you because for you sure, can't, right? for sure. Um, but principle has always been yeah. a big thing for you. Yeah, I think so. Okay, well, I'm just saying it doesn't exist with a lot of people, especially some in the medical profession. That that doesn't you, really exist. You know, my my experience has been that a lot of people actually I think agree with that philosophically, but their circumstances keep them from acting on it, mm -hmm. either because they've got whopping student loans. True. I mean, hundreds of thousands of I dollars. I can, can't even half imagine. a million dollars of student loans. You know, you, you can't make the kind of choice I did. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, thank you parents for paying my way through school so that I had the luxury of being able to act on my principles. Uh, I, I, know, I know a lot of healthcare folks who, who were um, uh, appreciative of, supportive of, um, of what we were doing, and and many I think would have done something similar, or mm -hmm. you know whatever suited their personalities. But but I think the finances, you know, medical school really ought to be free, mm -hmm. and or and or free, and perhaps asking people for a year or two of obligation to to work someplace with you know hard to get health care. Yeah, school debt and and paying the amount that we are paying right now in this country to go to school to learn something is a whole completely different podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's, we, a, it's a major problem. It really is a major problem. Yeah, I agree. Um, what is one of the biggest issues that you've seen, medical issues, that has faced Southern Oregon? Maybe even, let's just say, in the last decade. I know methamphetamine has been a big one. Um, what do you see, though, if there's one thing that you could look at? Is it addiction? Is it the need for health care? What is one of the biggest things you see facing Jackson County, or Southern Oregon, Jackson County, Josephine County? 
I don't know that any of the things facing Southern Oregon are different than what's facing uh, the country as a whole. Right. I'd say we have such a broken healthcare system mm -hmm. that so many things relate to that. The fact that we spend so much and get so little, the fact that large corporate interests really kind of run the show. I'll give you an example. We're in the middle of a syphilis outbreak in, in Jackson County. The rates are just skyrocketing. The treatment for, for syphilis is really quite simple. Uh, it's a shot of penicillin. Penicillin's one of the cheapest drugs to manufacture. It costs, it, it, so, so let me go back. So uh, many of the people getting syphilis um, are addicted to drugs. Many of them are on methamphetamines, not all, but mm -hmm. some. Um, and some of them are not terribly responsible, kind of goes with, you know, yep. STDs. Mm -hmm. um, so the time to treat them is when you diagnose them. So I'm a woman, I'm pregnant, I show up at an OBGYN office, they astutely diagnose me with syphilis, they don't carry the drug, right? They don't carry it because it's so expensive. $1,000 for a vial of a drug that ought to cost pennies. Wow. And does cost pennies for some subpopulations, but for the general medical public, it's $1,000. So they don't carry it. That person can't get treated on at the moment they're seen. Mm -hmm. And they're lost to follow-up, right? They go back to drug use, whatever. That would be an example of you know, a ridiculous high price in an uncoordinated market. You know, that's, that's the kind of stuff that we face all the time, and it reflects on quality of health care. Mm -hmm. Naloxone, a life-saving drug for people who are overdosing on, on, uh, on opioids, right. right? It's 150 bucks, and it can be manufactured for pennies. Buprenorphine, a very safe way for people to get off opioids and get onto a much safer medication. It costs hundreds and hundreds of dollars uh, a month. Uh, insurance companies are hesitant to pay for it. Um, that drug, again, it's, it's off patent. So that's just the pharmaceutical side for sure. of healthcare. Um, so I would have to say that I think the, the system of healthcare, which is quite different in this country from almost every other, in fact, probably every other first world country, is what we need to focus on, and a lot of a lot of things will fall into place when we fix that. Okay, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. You're um, quite the world traveler. I've, I have. Yeah. Been around, yes. Yeah. Um, you is it you and your family, or just you and your wife, or who who who's the big traveler? Well, I believe real strongly that children need to get out and see the world. So we tried to take some kind of international trip with our kids almost every year. That's awesome. Um, so, you know, and, and as everybody got older and had more responsibilities, sometimes we'd go with some of the kids. You know, for example, one trip, my daughter and my son and I went to uh, Mexico, went to um, Oaxaca, mm -hmm. and my uh, other two kids, went. my wife, that went to the East Coast, and we've been, you know, Indonesia and China and Europe and any trip that sticks out to you as just something that you'll just always, always, always cherish. You know, our trip to Bali was pretty special. Um, we um, we delivered a number of babies to um, a pilot who ended up, and you know, as I said, you know, people paid what they could, and they mm -hmm. couldn't pay much at the time. But he eventually got a job working for the Indonesian government, 
you know, f doing mapping. Anyway, he came back years later and said, okay, payback time. Oh. I'm treating you all to a trip to Bali. No way. You and your family. So we went to Bali and he put us up in a, you know, sweet little shack and, you know, on the, co on the, on the water and, and ha we had a car and we had a house hmm. boy. <laughs> anyway, so it was a pretty special trip and, and um, it was a, a very different culture. Nothing, nothing quite like it that we'd experienced before. And I think that's called karma. You just have good karma. That was, that was good karma, yeah. It sounds like yeah. it, very good karma. Um, we could probably talk a lot, um, but I'm gonna wrap this up a little bit. My final sure. three questions. Best advice you've ever been given? Best advice? Well, um, I suspect I've been given a lot of good advice mm -hmm. that I didn't follow and forgot. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> my, my father's advice was um, to um, live your life uh, for the purpose of making a better world for your children. And um, I've, I've tried to do that both literally for my children, but in the broader sense for, you know, the children of, you know, of the planet, yeah. right? Respect for them, and 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 I think that um, the the relationship to a child can be like the relationship to people who uh, are in are in a period of need, like healthcare. Mm -hmm. And so I think that um, you know that that kind of drew me um, to to doing the kind of work I've done, mm -hmm. and and. Um, I really don't know what the meaning of life is, but I think in a part it is to uh, to make the world a better place and to you know to go to go knowing that you yeah. at least made the effort. Exactly. My mama always said, "Leave it better than you found it." Right. Exactly. Okay. Right. Um, if you ever left this place, Southern Oregon, what would bring you back? What would you miss the most? You know, it's it's the friends, it's the relationships, um, it's the people that I've grown up with mm -hmm. um, who are peppered throughout, you know, Southern Oregon. That would be it. Okay. And then if you were ever given a final uh, meal and a final drink, what would that look like? <laughs> what an amazing question. Thank you. Um, it's my favorite I, question. It, no. Um, I really like seafood. I'd probably have lobster mm. and... Um, are you a melted butter guy with your lobster? Absolutely. Okay. Right. All right. Yeah. What else? Well, besides melted butter and lobster, probably a tomato, you know, a, an heirloom tomato that's just been picked and off the vine. Nothing like them. Yeah, maybe maybe an ear of corn that's just been picked too. I like I like okay. farming and vegetables. Okay. Um, and what would I drink? I don't know. Probably some great red wine. Sounds fantastic. Yeah. Invite me to that final meal. <laughs> I like okay. it. If you're listening to this podcast on iTunes and you like it, please subscribe, rate, and review. It helps other people find us. We're also on Google Play. You can check out the video portion of this podcast at ktvl.com. Just click on Features, then Off Script. Dr. Jim Shames, I knew you were interesting. I had no idea you were this interesting. <laughs> so thanks for being here. I really appreciate you it. Bet. My pleasure.